Blog Talk Radio.
during my spring break when everything kind of shut down. I was actually I was in Port St. Lucie for spring training uh, during my spring break, and, and I was at the last uh, game before everything shut down. Um, and when we got back home to uh, to New York, everything was was starting to uh, to close up. Um, so I, I've been in New York City since, and you know, school was was virtual. I just finished that this this past week. Um, so it, it's been, uh, it's been crazy. It's been, um, I guess it, it felt like, uh, how my, my summers usually go with a lot of, uh, you know, staying up late, sleeping late, um, and, you know, just kind of finding stuff to do, except the difference is that summers usually have lots of baseball and, uh, and it, it feels like a, a very sizable void, uh, as I'm sure it feels, uh, for all of you. So, um, yeah, just, just like everyone else, just kind of taking it day by day and, uh, um, kind of just seeing where everything goes uh, from here. Yeah, you know, it certainly is a void, uh, but I've been stressing how it, it kind of gives us a moment with all the content out there that's not baseball, let alone all the baseball games that have already happened uh, leading up to this moment. You know, it, it, it is nice to have uh, the ability to have a refresher, uh, remember some of these great moments in baseball history, why we love this game so much. Uh, but before we also personally go down our own uh, little uh, history trip today, at some point, uh, a little tease on the Met team podcast. Uh, but Jacob, you were talking about finishing up school virtually this year. My sister, who is 20 years younger than me, a big gap. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now as to why. But uh, she, you know, she's been in high school. This was her freshman year of high school. Uh, and, and obviously you're in college and it's going to be a little different experience to what she's having, but what has that been like for you? What has it been like, uh, you know, and, and especially, you know, some people obviously uh, do take online classes in general, uh, but now everybody is forced to. So what has that been like for you? Yeah, it's been quite an adjustment. Um, I guess, you know, my, generation i guess is very used to adapting to new technological things um so it really only took you know a week to kind of adjust to the flow of uh you know zoom calls and and other things and most of our assignments even during the normal school year are submitted uh, online anyway um so yeah it is weird kind of rolling out of bed and, and instead of going outside and walking to class here or walking to the couch and, you know, or the, the kitchen table. Um, so yeah, it, it, it took, took a little bit to get adjusted. Um, definitely, uh, some, some kinks in the, in the, the technology as far as the, the virtual meetings went. Um, but you know, we, we got through it and fingers crossed we won't have to, uh, you know, do it, do it again in the fall and, and we'll all be back together, uh, on campus. That would be nice. Your mouth to God's ears, as they say. Uh, so without further ado, you know, with all of this going on, obviously, we're still trying to get baseball in. Baseball still trying to get in. And there's going to be a vote this coming Tuesday, it sounds like, uh, for the Players Association in a proposal that, that MLB is uh, is going to detail to them. So, Rich, you know, you, you're kind of at the foreground uh, of all of this. So what, what do you uh, – what from what you've heard – Let's start with you on on what you think of the the uh, the reported proposal. 
Well, you know, the fan in me loves it because it means that there's something substantive to react to. And for those who haven't seen it, um, the 10-team divisions would be the call. And so the Mets would be in a division mixed up with some American League teams and some National League teams. And, um, and the current thinking, and again, this isn't confirmed, but the current thinking is that it, when you're in the division, you would play the teams that would normally be in your league. You would play four three-game series against them. And then the teams that would be in the other league, you would play two three-game series against them. And that would come up to a number of, um, of roughly 78 to 82 games. So basically exactly half a season. So, again, you'd be in the division, with, uh, you'd be in a mixed division, and you'd play only within that division. You'd play more games against the teams that would normally be in your league in normal years and fewer games against the teams that would be in the other league. And that's the way it would work with an expanded playoff format. Um, I heard it the other day, and it seems like it, you know, it's a bit, uh, bit involved, but the two division winners, there would be three, divisions across, three, three uh, divisions across baseball. So the two division winners with the best records would get a bye in the first round. And then there would be an expanded wild card round where it would be best of three. And it would be figured out, you know, among I think it would be the next six teams would make it, so the other two division winners, and then I believe the next four. And so they'd play a uh, two out of three series, and then it would move on to a best of five, then a best of seven, and then ultimately the World Series. So, again, all of this is subject to change. And now let's get to the meat of the matter. Well, the meat of the matter is that on Monday, I believe, of this week, tomorrow, the, this proposal will be voted on by the owners. So that's hurdle number one. The owners have to say, huh, okay, you know, 82 games, it's a little bit different than what, what they've been talking about because, remember, they would want to end this season in late October. Um, so you'd have uh, – actually, be, well, you'd have all of July, September, uh, July, August, and September. So the season, I take that back, the season would basically end – when it normally would. It would end around that first week of October. It would be 82 games in 90 days. Over the course of three months, you'd have eight days off, which is not all that different than what they're doing now. There might even be a few more days off if they played the seven-inning doubleheaders that they've talked about. So this all has to be voted on by the owners. They have to be comfortable with an 82-game season. And the most important thing is very likely without fans all the way through, especially in the beginning. So if the owners ratify the proposal, it then has to go to the players. Now, a couple of things to think about. Players, um, the first thing is the owners are saying they're going to be asking the players for a give back financially, not just a proration, but also a bit of a concession because the fan, there will be no fans in the stands. Goodness knows where that will go. Uh, we've talked about deferring money, not necessarily taking it away, but deferring it, all of that. So how badly does the union want to get these guys on the field? and have them have some income, don't know. And then there's the issue of today where Andrew Miller was quoted, uh, the, the Cardinals reliever. He was quoted as saying something that you have to think is what everybody's thinking at this point, all the players are thinking. Look, he basically said this. We want to play. We are players. We want to play. We're fine with you know, the idea of having the divisions mixed up and 82 games and all that. He didn't even comment on the salary thing. He said, but before we do this, we want to be sure, help, help us understand this proposal, how you ensure our safety, the safety of our coaches, 
the safety of the umpires, the safety of everybody else. Because what he said was, we as players, yeah, you know, we're young and healthy and, and not in a high-risk category. The same cannot be said of our coaches, our managers, the umpires. So what we're going to want to see in this proposal is how you would keep everyone, not just the players, everyone safe. So I think, and I'll wrap up my spiel here, I think there are two things on the table. Number one, if the owners want to give back financially, how will the players react to that? How desperate are they to get out there? Will they take deferred money? Secondly, and more importantly, is there any way a proposal can be put on the field? Look, you can't ensure anybody's safety in any aspect of life, but to dramatically reduce this risk, what would it look like? Can it be done? That is the crux of the matter, and that, I think, the answer to that question will determine whether or not we have baseball this year. Mike, can the safety, you know, be insured in the way the players would like it to? And is, is this all also contingent on, on what the, the governments have to say, all the different local governments? Uh, answer to your second question, I, I would think so. I would think states and municipalities have their priorities in place. And, you know, who is baseball to come in and trump all that? Uh, I don't know. Question number one was safety. Nothing's guaranteed. Not today. And perhaps not by the start of this hypothetical season. But doesn't that bring into question with regards to testing, that if baseball players will be tested, well, what about the civilian sector? And where should the priorities lie? The baseball players are getting tested often. Well, what about the masses of people who haven't been tested and who want to be tested and who are waiting to be tested? This is all the haranguing that's going to go on from groups coming at baseball from every direction. Uh, you know, and now we're talking about a collectively bargained industry. They're open to reaching agreements. That's what they're in the business to do. And ultimately, I think money will be the determining factor. If these guys can agree to money, everything else comes secondary. Everything else will fall into place. They'll agree to almost anything. Owners and players alike. But money will be the determining factor and the union, insofar as that's concerned, they're not in the business of givebacks. So, you know, if this reality and calamity strikes at their core, and they all can reach a, a a benevolent resolution to this, then fine. But historically, unions aren't in the business of giving back. Jacob, I'm going to uh, frame it two ways for you. Because uh, you, you sent me a link prior to that kind of covers the overall baseball rule aspect of, of uh, the effects of COVID-19. Um, and that involved, you know, universal DH uh, with this entire proposal. Um, so on top of expanding on that, I'd also like you to 
go down what you know about the minor league side of this entire proposal and how the minor leagues are going to be affected by anything. Because, you know, we're, we're only talking about what, you know, 80 games of, of Major League Baseball. What does this mean for the minors? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a very good question because I think a lot of um... – a lot of minor league players would like to know uh, the answer to that as well, because they, they don't really know what uh, their next few months are going to look like. And they, they depend on um, depend on a minor league season uh, for, for the paycheck. Um, But it, as far as I've read, obviously I have no, um, you know, inside information because there, there really is no information to, to have, but as far as I've read, um, you know, the chances of there being any minor league season where, you know, clubs from or farm teams from organization, different organizations are playing against each other as we are accustomed to. Um, the odds of that happening, even if there is a major league season, is very, very low um, just because there are so many more teams that you have to take into account. There are individual leagues, um and and it's just kind of a, a mess of a situation to kind of figure out in addition to uh, the major league situation. Um, but, I mean, we've seen things like the the uh, the draft being short, shortened to five rounds. That has an effect on the minor leagues. Um, you know, owners are, are trying to cope with the fact that they're losing money of not from not, uh, you know, hosting home games. So they're trying to save a little money on the draft side. Um, that's just going to mean fewer players going into the organizations. And then long-term that probably paves the way for, uh, you know, the 40 plus teams to be uh, cut from uh, organized or uh, affiliated baseball, uh, which has been proposed down the line, even as early as next year. So uh, I doubt there's going to be a minor league season. Um, what will probably happen is that rosters are expanded to I don't know. They were going to go to 26 anyway, so maybe 32. I don't know if if that's kind of what they're they're thinking about. But um, so they'll be able to, to carry a few extra guys, and then I'm sure uh, the spring training complexes will be open, and teams will have guys playing against themselves uh, just in case someone additional is needed to to fill in a, a hole at a you know a moment's notice. So. Um, still kind of all unfolding about how, how that would, that would play out, but I doubt there will be a traditional minor league season. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, things are, are in terms of how rules are going to work. Uh, probably things are going to be lo- looking a little different if, if there is a season. Um, and, and one of those, like you mentioned is the universal DH probably at least just for one season, they could kind of use it as a trial run for, um, down the line when the new CBA is written and, and kind of things are agreed to, which, um, you know, the DH wouldn't be part of the CBA, but it, you know, the new rules that are kind of being uh, proposed by major league baseball and, and, and put in place over the next couple of years. So it, it would really be interesting to see if, um, you know, teams, national teams are forced to, uh, to, to field a, a designated hitter. Um, I guess for the Mets that would help maybe get UNSS, but it's in the lineup um, could get Dominic Smith in the lineup at first base, but uh, Pete Alonso at DH because uh, his defense was not great last year. So uh, lots of interesting possibilities. And, and I assume everything is going to kind of happen quickly when it does happen. Um, 
you know, like the government will, will give them the, the okay. And then all the plans will start to come together and, and rules will become clearer. But um, I think the only thing that is for certain is that um, whatever baseball is played in 2020 will look a little different than, than what we're used to. And now uh, I'm actually going to have a little bit of a, a classic baseball debate with you, or just at least ask you to expand on it. Why do you think that Pete Alonso was bad defensively last year? I think, well, okay. So I'll say that he, he was fine in the sense that he came with a pretty bad reputation uh, coming up from the minor leagues. Um, and he didn't look like a complete butcher in the field. And he did in fact, make some, some, uh, some nice diving plays. Some, um, I think he led the, the major leagues in scoops as defined by uh, uh, the baseball info solutions people. Um, the numbers aren't great. And I know you can kind of make whatever case you want for or against defensive metrics. Um, but all three, uh, all three uh, advanced defensive metrics that we have, including uh, the newest one, which is StatCast infield outs above average, which um, relies on, you know, radar tracking, um, had him as the worst first baseman in baseball. And I think he just kind of seems like he uh, he just doesn't feel really comfortable around the position. I don't know. Um, seems like maybe sometimes he was uh, trying to make plays on balls that he probably should have let go to the second baseman. Um, I don't know. I think he, he's trending upwards, and like I said, because he, he came in with a bad reputation, he, he looked better than uh, people were, were saying he was going to be coming out of the minor leagues. Um, but I think if you can get a better defender in Dominic Smith in the lineup and still keep Alonzo's bat in, in the lineup, then then I think that that would be something to consider. I get, you know, chills having actual baseball talk. Isn't this great? But I'm <laughs> going to go back to the proposal, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll go to you again, Rich, uh, with this. You know, just from what uh, uh, Jacob was just saying about all, you know, that like it, it reminds you of how many different affiliations there are. It reminds you of how many different layers of an organization there are. And the collateral here for what COVID-19 means uh, from from a baseball perspective, it's so nuanced, it's really hard to grasp right now as we discuss it. Yeah, no, that that yeah. is that is true. Sam. Um, there's a lot there, and um, when you think about, it, you know, Mike touched on it a little bit earlier about, you know, there are so many peripherals to be thinking about. You know, we had a show a couple of weeks ago where um, we had a fellow on who talked about how many people it takes to produce something for TV. You know, so you think about that, and and there are so many things to consider. Um, you know, and, and and a comment on what Jacob was saying just a moment ago about Pete Alonso. I mean, I, I haven't looked at that particular new advanced metric, but I I don't have a problem with what he was saying. I mean, you know, Pete Alonso isn't a great first baseman. It's, it's kind of true. You know, now he came up with the. Um, the reputation of being a butcher, right? And he worked very, very hard in his defense to a point where, you know, he, he rates on this, on that one particular metric, I believe Jacob, or I'm not sure if it's a blend of, of all the key advanced metrics, but you you were saying he rates as, as the lowest first baseman. Um, okay. You know, I, I think I really can't dispute that based on what I've seen in the metrics I've looked at. 
However, I think he's passable. I know you said that he, you know, he's progressing. He's a passable first baseman, and um, and you know, and we all have to remember you know, the thing about going for balls that might have made him might have gone better to the second baseman. I do think stuff like that will figure itself out. You know, as he um, as he has a couple more years under his belt, and with the work ethic he has, he he'll probably go from passable, maybe even to. I don't know, dare I say, close to league average. So the kinds of things that make him below average and, you know, near the bottom, I think are the fixable things, like, you know, instinct, right? So so when do I go for a ball that the, that the second baseman can get? Um, things like that. And so I, I have confidence that Pete Alonso, not only if he stayed the way he is right now, I think we can live with it based on the offense he gives, but I think the things that he has are ultimately fixable and he's very coachable. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. And well, the one and, point you know, I that think I that's, will, you know, yeah, go ahead. No, just the, the last point on that, that that I would make is that in the grand scheme of things, first base is probably um, one of the less important defensive positions. So if you have a slightly below average defensive first baseman who also has the potential to hit 53 home runs in a season, you you deal with it. <laughs> Bing bang right that's, there. No. Exactly. Bing, bing, bang, bada, boom. And, and Mike, we're going to go down that rabbit hole. You can expand on uh, everything else we're talking about as much as you want, but I will start with the Pete Alonso side of things. If, if he's considered uh, superb from a defensive standpoint, specifically when it comes to the scoops, which may, from a, a, a defensive metric side of things, uh, help even out the defensive scoring, but isn't, I mean, those are generally, that means that if somebody doesn't make those scoops, that player, that's a, that's a player on first base, uh, that he has turned into an out. So that, that has to count for something. Sure. But I'm going to keep it simple. Experience is the best teacher. Practice makes perfect. I don't find him to be the liability people thought he was going to be um, kind of in lockstep with Jacob and Rich in that respect that, you know, uh, his scouting report and his performance on the field last season didn't quite match up. I wasn't disappointed. Sure, he needs work. Uh, but I think uh, with his attitude, he's got the right attitude. You know, he can improve and and, and be a, a respectable first baseman. I'm in no rush to, you know, uh, supplant him with a, 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 a more defensively solid guy there and have him – Alonzo, that is, learn a different position. Uh, I'm not I'm not crazy about that. The offense will overcome some of his mistakes. Uh, so I'll be impatient in that regard. I'm cool. I'm cool with Alonzo. He's got the right he's got the right attitude. He'll he'll work himself uh into a better state. So in terms of some of these uh ideas being proposed, I mean it sounds like baseball may use this opportunity uh as a guinea pig for some of the stuff. So What's your opinion on anything they may do, especially uh, Universal VA? Well, without a doubt, you know, I think this 2020 proposed season will indeed be the guinea pig of all guinea pigs. Let them, you know, come out with any wacky idea that they can possibly uh, dream up, implement it, see if you like it, see if you don't. I've attended Ducks games and Somerset Patriots games, and I've seen the electronic strike zone in action. And I can assure you, if you're at the game, you won't notice the difference. I can explain to you how it works, but, you know, that's a different 
conversation. But I will assure you, you won't notice the difference. There's no time lag. Uh, but you still need an umpire at home plate for sake of continuity of play and, and other matters. Uh, so if you can think it up, make it happen this season. Get it out of your system. Get your yah-yahs out. Because whatever it is, I don't want it seen. I don't want to see him bleed into the 2021 season. I don't want to see the DH season after this. I I, I really don't. Keep it the way it is or (laughs) take it away from the American League. But I'm not even, you know, I'm not even pushing for that. Uh, But I do think this is part of what I've been calling the great correction. Just like the market correction of 29 and you know, others down the road. This is the great correction of baseball. Minor league, the business of minor league baseball has a very a volatile history. There's always been change and upheaval. Uh, if anything, baseball is finishing only their most recent glory run, and perhaps this is the end of that run. The correction was headed their way anyway. If you're a team and you have seven layers of affiliates, there's a lot of players on those rosters that you know damn well aren't going to make the major league. So why would you, as an organization and a business, for that matter, want to keep, you know, pumping money that way as opposed to investing in more practical and perhaps more effective ways? Uh, just a question. So I just want to reiterate, the great correction is underway. They're going to come out with anything possible and see what, you know, sticks to the wall. And all I can say is cross your fingers and good luck when we come out of this on the other side in 2021. Get your yayas out. That is a great Rolling Stones live album. I just wanted to throw that out there when you said that. I, I couldn't help but think of that album. Um, it, you know, Rich, it's just thinking about some of these this proposal – 90, uh, 80 games in 90 days, you know, even without fans in the stands, there does sound like something very exciting about it, if, if indeed they're able to get it back. Oh, for sure. I think, um, you know, you think about uh, the NBA, I, I've heard that there, there's rumor that they want their players back in camp shortly to think about, you know, finishing the season, going into the playoffs, NHL the same. And at this point, you know, I think those of us, you know, if anybody's listening to this podcast, obviously they're, they're a big baseball fan, right, and, and certainly the four of us, we would take anything. I mean, I know there are people who are getting up at 4 in the morning to watch the Korean Baseball League on ESPN because it's baseball, and Aaron Altair is in the game. So, you know, at least you see a couple of familiar faces. And that's how star <laughs> people are for it. I'm guilty. But it's true. I mean, it's absolutely true. And, and – um, and so, you know, we are starved for baseball, and, and people will – if you tell me right now you can have 82 games with no fans in the stands, and, you know, I'm not – I despise the DH. I'm, I'm so in, in step with Mike, but this 82-game season comes, you have to have a DH, all, you know, every team, and, and I know that it might be laying the groundwork for that blasted thing to come into baseball universally. I'll take it. I will take it because that's how much I want my game back. And I think, you know, anybody, like I said, anybody listening to this is enough of a fan. 
baseball fans in general, we will take it. We will take 82 games. We'll take modified rules. We'll take no fans in the stands. We'll take DH or any of that stuff just to be able to have our sport. And so um, it, the whole thing's a compromise, right, when you think about it. And people have asked me, I have people asking me all the time, if the Mets win the World Series this year in an 82-game season, you know, with modified rules and all this stuff, would you be, you know, less excited? Of course not. Everybody has the same chance to win. And, um, and it doesn't – at this, there are going to be totally modified rules – it's not going to matter. We'll just have our baseball back. And, you know, sometimes we all have to be agile. This is something the world has really never seen before. You know, granted, um, granted there was a Spanish flu pandemic, but something of this magnitude, you know, where there's so much information about it and shutting everything down, we've never seen this before. And if, and if there has to be modification to get the game back, okay, okay, I'll take it. Um, but that's my answer. And if I may say anything. Because Rich brought up Korea, if I may, one second. Because Rich brought up Korea. There's our two test cases. Japan attempted to open their season. Something happened, went wrong. They shut it down, canceled the rest of the season. Korea is now playing games in, in empty stadiums. What happens should somebody test positive? Does the team shut down? Does the league shut down? We don't know. So those are our two test cases right now, and that's only those. Those are the only two. Uh, similar situations the baseball can compare this to right now. I just want to clarify that I was la- I wasn't laughing about the Korean baseball part. I was laughing about the Aaron Altair part. Just want to throw that out there. Oh, it is. Want to make sure that's uh, understandable. Go ahead, Jacob. That. Have you been watching any of this uh, Korean baseball? I have been. I think I've only missed one of the games so far. Um, that, that have been televised on ESPN. So, so wait a um, second. Are you watching it live or are you TiVo, TiVoing it? I can't believe I said that phrase. That's even that's anachronistic at this point. But what are you? How are you watching it? I am watching them live. Um, part of it is is because I have no schedule that I have to adhere to, and I'm I'm relatively young, and I, I can stay up very very late, uh, and and it won't affect me too much. So. Um, it's better when the games are on at one and not, not five. Um, but yeah, I've been watching them and they are not major league baseball, but it's thing. And there are major league baseball players who I know of and who are playing over there, including Aaron Altair, um, and some other guy, Tyler Saladino was with the White Sox. Uh, uh, Ben Lively was with the Phillies. Drew Ruchinski was with the Marlins. So, um, there, there are guys that I know, and, and it, it's, it's exciting because um, it's live baseball, and um, it, it's just, it's just something to to uh, satisfy the uh, the need um, temporarily. I, I can't imagine myself, you know, in uh, September still hanging on the edge of my seat for for every uh, NC Dinos game. But actually, well, you never know. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it's. Uh, it's kind of just a temporary uh, thing to, to get me over. But, um, yeah, it, it's – and the one thing that I did not notice until probably the fifth or sixth inning of the first game I was watching was that there were no fans. I didn't really kind of register that there weren't any fans because um, they were kind of pumping in that crowd murmur. Um, and it just kind of felt normal. And it really kind of swayed me to the to – the, the side of, you know, if Major League Baseball can operate without fans, 
um, and that's the only way, then then I'm I'm all for that. Um, but yeah, I'm I have uh, w- without I, without shame, I will I will admit that I have indulged in the Korean baseball experience. <laughs> Live at five o'clock in the morning, or as you say, one o'clock is easier. Mike, a lot, what what some of the players have brought up, uh, and I, in fact, I saw a I saw Pete Alonso uh, on CBS this morning the other day was talking about it. Um, uh, he was saying how you know they were they're kind of used to this in the minors and and you know high school and at, at many different uh, points in their baseball career they've played in front of no fans so. Sounds like you know that's that's the last thing that's going to be distracting to a ball player, who who generally speaking sometimes is trying to you know block them out as it is. Mike, you there? Oh, that was directed at me. I'm sorry. Oh no, it's okay. After you, after you, Mike. Did you hear me? Well, reload me on that one. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, so I, I was saying that something that players have been talking about, including Pete Alonso, was saying that they're used to, whether it's minor leagues or otherwise, uh, prior to their major league experience, they're used to either little or no fans. That is very true. And how many times have you heard athletes, whatever the sport, basketball, hockey, baseball, football, that they play harder and are in more, are more intense in practice than sometimes they are in the game? So that's a that's a condition I think they're very you know much accustomed to playing hard and, and intensely in front of no one. Uh, sure, I think he speaks truth. Rich, as a season ticket holder yourself, you know you were talking before we went on air about uh, uh, some of this element of it, the fans. So what what's your take on all of this? Well, yeah, I want to talk about that because. Only this week, just this past week, teams were allowed to come out with their um, their proposals and start executing their refunds slash, you know, whatever thing, whatever they wanted to do for fans who held tickets for games in March and April. And, um, and so there are differences, you know, how prominent the refunds are being offered. Um, are teams dissuading refunds? So we talked about that a bit last time, about how, you know, the Mets are, are really encouraging fans to let the Mets keep the money, and they're, they're doing so by saying, you know, if you hold on to this, we'll give you a 20% additional credit. So if you have $100 in credits, you'll have 120 So you could use that for, for more tickets, or you can uh, use it to, you know, spend in the ballpark your t- extra $20. If you buy tickets of the same value, you'll have $20 that you could spend on merchandise and, and concessions and such. So uh, the Mets have taken a bit of a hit for – being a little reluctant, you know, it's buried on their website. In fact, Mike Puma wrote an article that, about it this week in the Post where where he said that, you know, the Mets and Yankees both had the refund option very well buried, whereas the Red Sox, it popped right out. You know, if you want your money back, do this. Uh, but the Mets, you had to go hunting for it, Yankees as well. So there's that. And so now I wanted to throw something out. I'm, I'm part of a season ticket holder buying group, and our leader um, sent an email to the Mets. I thought it was very well thought out. What he was saying is, what he said was, hey, why don't you do this? For your season ticket holders, give us the option to forsake our rights to our tickets. Of course, this is all predicated on 
fans being allowed in the games, you know, August, September, whatever. But he was saying, give your season ticket holders the option to surrender all 2020. And so now those barcodes are invalid, and the Mets can sell those tickets. Season ticket spots in the ballpark are typically the most attractive, right? So the Mets now could sell our seats. They could sell them to other people who might be comfortable going. A lot of us in the season ticket holder buying group are not comfortable going this year. And in return for that, we get our full credit for next year. So how that's different is let's just say they start allowing people in August and September. We choose not to go. We've, we've lost our money. It's, it's down the toilet. But what our leader here is saying, our fearless leader, is saying, hey, we'll give you back the right store tickets right now. You could resell them you know, if you allow fans and just give us a credit for next year and we part friends. And the way he wrote this email, I thought it was interesting because he was saying, you know, the Mets don't have a good reputation right now. They, they really don't. How they handle this situation will either further cement that in people's minds or start to change it. And he said, this is an opportunity for you guys. It's an opportunity to say, look, we get it. We get that we might be able to open to fans in August and September, but we also get that we can't ensure your safety. And if you're not comfortable, we're not going to say we took your money, you know, so sorry, not sorry, you know, that we, um, that we have your money. If we play the games, you didn't go, you lose. We're giving you a chance to do something differently than other teams might, you know, be innovative and show a fan-friendly approach. So, you know, I, I think in summary, it's not only what my particular group is doing, but, fan, but teams have to start thinking about this. They have to start thinking about – if they do allow fans in the ballpark, you have to socially distance them. So if you have a 42,000-seat arena, what are you going to sell? 20,000 tickets, maybe, and only sell them, so four here, four over there. What about, what about uh, bathrooms? What about concessions? People are, what about when everybody leaves after the ninth inning? You're going to have pulsed leaving so people don't crowd the stairwells? It's a very difficult thing. And um, and so that's the thing I wanted to throw out that, you know, as people who have already forked over money, and I forked mine over in November, the teams and how they handle this will re- really show a customer service mentality or a greed mentality. And let's see what happens. You know, I I think he's your your your. I just lost the word, but obviously your your fellow season ticket holder uh, made great points in that. And unfortunately, um, I think when it comes to Jeff Wilpon, you know, we're we're going to see his true colors shining through. And as we have any time he's opened his mouth regarding all of this, uh, Jacob, you know, you're you're you are younger than all three of us, um, and have you know, grown up in a time when you could go to a Mets game and probably be within six feet of somebody because of, of you know, the, the way attendance was. Um, what's your opinion on all of this? What What is your opinion on how the Mets need to handle if, when uh, fans are allowed back into the stadium? Yeah, it's obviously a, a complicated situation um, because the Mets, rightfully so, don't want to lose money, um, but there is also the the ethical side to all of it. Um, I think uh, you know what what Rich brought up about his his uh, his group's proposal um, is would be certainly valid in terms of handling 
ticket sales. Um, you know, me and my family, we've never uh, really dealt with a, a ticket package. We, we've always kind of just purchased game to game. Um, so can't really kind of uh, put myself in those shoes because I don't really know exactly how all of that works. Um, but in terms of if there are fans allowed inside, you know, I mean, how are you going to adhere to or force everyone to adhere to, you know, sitting X amount of seats apart? Um, it, it just seems, uh, you know, not logical to me to, to uh, spend the, the brain power and, and the resources to, to enforce all of that. So, um, yeah, I, I strongly believe that there will not be fans watching Major League Baseball games in person, even if there is a season, um, just because it, it, it's going to be too complicated to kind of uh, work everything out. And, and you know, not everyone's going to be pleased if, if there is some sort of thing that's worked out. I mean, there have been uh, things I've read from the, the, the league in Taiwan um, where they, they're going to do some sort of lottery to determine who gets in. I mean, that that that's just kind of not uh, what I would hope to see. Uh, make its way to to Major League Baseball. No, I certainly would not want uh, to see a lottery system with with letting fans in. You know, it, that that just uh, you know it's it's extremely complicated. And um, and and I'll, I'll go to you to you, Mike, uh, next on this. You know, since we haven't uh, gotten your two cents, no pun intended, on all this money talk. Well, we always get your two cents on all this money talk, but specifically since Rich was talking about it from the season ticket holder perspective, after you. I don't believe baseball should be playing, uh, and I don't believe you – know, you know what? Fans will show up. If they allow it, I'm sure fans will show up. How many? That remains to be seen. Uh, and – you know, that I, I would assume are the same type of people who are out there today uh, not minding protocols, you know, with regards to social distancing, not wearing masks and whatnot. You look at these uh, pictures from parks and, you know, the riverfronts throughout the city, and, you know, <laughs> it's somewhat of a mess, uh, kind of ponderous, uh, hoping that people should and be doing better. But still, I don't think people are going to have the comfort level to go to a park, you know, and like Rich says and and, and Jacob says, have all this extra interaction with with staff, this, that, the other. It's unavoidable. Uh, You know, with regards to season ticket holders and whomever has laid out money, you know, they're always quick to take, and I mean business as a well, whole, they're always quick to take our money, but, you know, getting them back uh, is a near impossibility. Uh, the right thing to do is give everybody their money back, and if you're going to have people coming into your park, every seat should be the same price. First come, first serve. They can monitor who sits where. First dibs, you want to sit front row, go right ahead. Six seats down, next guy. And they just keep on filling seats in that manner, distance, until they reach a number, and then that's it. I can't think of anything other than that, only because I don't want anyone there in the first place. So whatever I come up with is just going to be pure fantasy. 
But if you're going to open up the parks, pop. Pay one price, everyone. None of this, you know, luxury seating, tier seating, this seating, that seating. Everybody pays one price. First come, first serve. You sit where you fit. And if you're there early enough, you sit where you see fit. Otherwise, I just don't see how they're honestly going to pull this off. Again, I would step in and say, where does baseball come come into, like you say, Sam, states and cities and trump the protocol that's already in place? So there's going to be a lot. I, you know, Tuesday's vote is only the beginning. I, I don't see the vote turning up in baseball's favor. Uh, obviously, the union will come up with a counterproposal, and then they'll ha- and then they'll haggle. That's part of the no- uh, you know the negotiating process. That's understood. Uh, you know, and the longer they haggle over it, the more time goes by, and before you know it, they may be at a point where they may just have to scrub the whole idea to uh, anyway because they just simply run out of time. I, I I find this to be a very difficult decision for them to make. Government, you would think, is given the impression that they're on baseball side and wanting them to get started. Then again, I just don't know. The air is safe, Sam. I mean, it just doesn't sound like, you know, without going down the, the political rabbit hole, Rich, it doesn't necessarily sound like, you know, Franklin Delano's letter to uh, Judge Landis. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know, and I think um, it, it kind of comes full circle now because you know, we start talking about, you know, should there be baseball, what's the proposal? And you think about it, we all want baseball, but the thing is it's so complicated for all the reasons we spend our time talking about. You know, safety is one. Number two is how do you treat your customers? If there are no fans, what do you do with the money that they've already paid you? That, that's an issue. You know, even if there's no fan goes to any game for the rest of the year, um, how do you deal with that? Don't know. Uh, local protocols. I mean, uh, Cuomo said that he thinks the last thing to reopen will be crowd events. Well, what is baseball? What is football? These are crowd events. And the last thing, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're talking August or are we talking 2021? You know, so, so getting going again involves, I think you use the term tentacles, Sam. There are so many tentacles to this thing, um, you know, from customer relations to player safety to all of that stuff. Um, even the NFL, you know, they're, they're not committing to having week one. I mean, the schedule came out and it does say that the season starts, I think it's like the 12th of September or something. But they haven't fully committed that there will not be a delay. So, um, so the whole thing is up in the air. And, and as much as we want it, want it, and I get excited about it, and I'm like, you know, oh man, hang on another month. There's going to be some spring training games. I've got to play somebody. I'll be, I'll be watching. But then you think about it's like it's like dandelions. You know, you you, you pluck one, you solve one problem, but then there are a whole ton of them out there that you still have to solve. And um, I'm not ready to throw in the towel and say they can't do it, but what I'm saying is this is a really complicated thing. And um, if they could pull it off, great. But it's like Andrew Miller said, there are so many things that have to happen, and if any one of them goes wrong, you derail the whole thing. So 
My hopes are modest. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's really a tough thing to, to sell as we've been trying to figure it out here. Uh, and I'm going to press the reset button here. You have been listening to a Netsian podcast, and we're so thankful that you have. Uh, Jacob, you know, uh, you're watching Korean baseball. I understand that you want it back. But what, what are some of your ideas here in how to properly deal with all these different personnel that baseball uh, the entertainment of baseball, uh, the, the, the production, just all, all of those different elements. Is there anything that you would add that we haven't talked about, that baseball hasn't talked about, in how to make sure to, as best as possible, uh, guarantee safety to an extent? I mean, I really think we, we've touched on all of it, and I think the, the biggest thing would, would be to not allow fans. I think a good compromise would, would be – um, and they'll be continuing to show that they um, they appreciate their fans and to make their game as as widely available as possible. And um, things like uh, you know television blackouts and, and streaming blackouts on on MLB TV kind of if they could eliminate that for for the shortened season, I think that would be a nice compromise. Um, you know, I, I think there's definitely a, an opportunity to capitalize on the lack of fans being able to be at the games and then to, to make up for it by increasing their, their media production value or, or, or whatever, however you want to describe it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if <laughs> I guess if I had the, uh, the right answer to, to how to solve this whole thing, I, I'd be in the, uh, the commissioner's office and, and not on the phone with you guys. Right. Hey, Jacob, you never know what direction your career could go. So hang tight. You might be right on Rob Manfred's line uh, just as soon as we hang up. You never know. Um, and I, 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 I want – yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, and even if I am, I'll make, uh, make sure to, to come back on the podcast at some point. <laughs> oh, that's much appreciated. Hey, maybe you can even get Manfred for us. Uh, well, well. <laughs> I guess we'll, I guess we'll approach that, all that stuff, uh, you know, at a later date. But uh, before we get to the historical section of our podcast, I want to go around the table and just see if there's anything else that we would want to t- uh, touch on that, that any of you guys would touch on. Uh, and we will start with Rich. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think we, we hit on the key ones, you know, the most newsworthy ones. Maybe one other thing just to mention is that um, this past week, Willie Mays turned 89 years old, and um, I think it was May 6th or 7th, uh, he turned 89, and, uh, you know, the greatest living player, I think, would be undisputable, and, um, you know, a guy who touched the Mets organization um, in 72-73, part of the pennant-winning team, and... um, you know, I, I just think it's worth a mention. That that would be the only other thing I wanted to say. I appreciate it because we did celebrate on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, shameless plug, uh, and Greg was on it. And he talked about when Willie Mays, uh, when the, the Mets got Willie Mays, what it meant for him as a, a young 
a baseball fan and that it didn't matter to it doesn't matter to him that it wasn't his best years. The Mets still had Willie Mays, and I'd love to uh, when we have Greg back on this. I'd love to have him expand on that since you brought it up. Um, Mike, do you, do you want to expand on Willie Mays as well as anything else you would want to? Willie Mays, uh, the say hey kid, I arguably the best player in baseball. I'm glad. He was in a Mets uniform for at least a brief time. You no, know, he was near and dear to Miss Joseph, uh, Joan Payson. Uh, and, you know, that's going to lead me to where is her commemorative statue at City Field. Uh, hey, hey. Say again? I just gave you a here, here, like like the olden uh, days. Maybe I've been reading about the 30s a little too much. But um, Jacob, would you like to touch on Willie Mays and anything else you would like to before we get to number 53? Well, all, all I uh, all I know about Willie Mays comes through uh, you know YouTube and Baseball Reference. Um, you know, uh, un- unfortunately, I uh, I did not overlap with his career, but um, you know, obviously, obviously one of the greats, and and I uh, I agree that if we're talking about all, all around all time baseball players, then he he has to be uh, you know definitely at the top of the list, if not number two. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we touched all the bases. I think the only other thing that I would bring up is, you know, we we're talking about um, uh, ways that we are are coping with baseball without with no baseball. Um, and, and for me, I dusted off the old Stratomatic baseball uh, board game off the shelf. Wow, that's kind oh of my god. That's how that's how I've been uh, kind of getting through some of the you know these days that that drag on. Um, and I, I just had completely forgotten the beauty of it. I had uh, gotten it in, in uh, 2008. Uh, so I have a set of 2008 cars and that that's, you know, my childhood. I grew up on the, you know, the 06, 07, 08 New York Mets. Um, so kind of getting to, to relive some of those players and teams. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun time. I don't know if, if any of you have, have experience with, with the game, but uh, oh, man. it's a classic. Well, it's, so I will, I will first expand that I only had maybe, you know, a little bit of stratomatic time right when I got into baseball when I was 13. So I, and it wasn't something that I was, I got like really heavy into, although I do have the board game somewhere from like the, the late nineties, I guess. And um, I would love to see for one, what stats I have, where everything uh, currently sits there. Um, but but uh, yeah, go, I, I, let's let's go down the stratomatic rabbit hole. Rich, you want to expand on your stratomatic uh, stratomatic experiences? I played it fairly regularly as a kid, um, and actually into my like early twenties, you know, we would play, and um, and it was interesting, you know, to see. Uh, I remember we were playing one time, and right when Davey Johnson became the Mets manager, and we had him on a, on one of the teams, and it was always interesting you know, to see how people did with Stratomatic. Things like, were you willing to sacrifice offense for defense? Were you willing to take a guy who was a four-fielder and maybe slightly better offensively than the other option? And I think that always said a lot. Um, it was always very interesting to, um, you know, when you would play with different people, how they would all look at it differently. Some people wanted the best defensive lineup out there. Others, you know, wanted um, – wanted you know offense and 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 i always found that um with my own groups of friends that the american league friends were the ones who wanted the offense the whole dh mentality i don't care if it's a four 
the guys are four defensively. I'm going to go with the best offensive players. And those of us who are National League fans used to sort of, you know, I'll say this, and I don't mean it pejoratively, but used to sort of see the bigger picture more and realize that the game was more than offense. We used to try to balance our lampsies. That was my observation. It was a fun game, though. Mike, what are your stratomatic experiences? I got this big smile on my face. We were a bunch of degenerates. We played so much, we started playing for money, and we we included free agency in our little league. We had a little league of five guys. Uh, I remember, I guess it was the 1980 season, so you were, you were playing with the 79 stats. I paid, uh, I believe it was 22 bucks for Dave Kingman because he had such a great with the Cubs. I know Jim Rice went for a couple of bucks, maybe 26 bucks, And, of course, all that money would go into a pool, and uh, the winner at the end of the year won the pool. So uh, that, 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 that's about two or three years' worth of our Stratomatic experiences. Otherwise, Stratomatic, what a brilliant game, one of the greatest games ever invented. Whoever did that, I mean, oh, my goodness, you're up there with Einstein as far as I'm concerned. What a great game. <laughs> Are they still making new board games of this thing? Uh, you just they they just reissue the cards every year. You should all you should have the dice. You should have a board on hand from whenever you first purchased the game. They just reissue the cards every year with the new stats. Uh huh. Well, I'm going to have to pull the board out and see what uh cards I can get and see what cards are in there at that uh, current juncture. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening uh, to a Metzine podcast and in the current edition, uh, we are going to take a little bit of a, a, a time machine and head back to basically all over Mets history as we go over number 53. And I'm going to start with you, Rich, on some of your memories of these, these players. It's a short list for sure. It really is. And, you know, and, and the one guy I wanted to talk about, I'll mention two guys, but one guy I wanted to mention was Chad Bradford. Um, I never understood why the Mets didn't bring him back. You know, you look at his 2006 season, the only season he was a Met, 4-2 and two with a 290 ERA, um, you know, 62 innings pitched. He allowed 59 hits. You know, when you look at that, he was a submarining right-hander who seemed to be, you know, if my memory serves, seems to be lethal on right-handed hitters. What is wrong with this guy? Like, why didn't they bring him back? If anybody knows, please let me know, because I'm not sure if it was a, if it was a contract Great thing question. or it was last year. Or whatever it was. I'm sorry. Uh, I just but, said you know, it's a great question you proposed. Yeah, I mean, what was wrong with this guy? It just seemed like he was the guy who, you know, in the bottom of the sixth or top of the sixth or seventh, whatever it was, when you needed to get a key right-handed hitter out, he would come in and, you know, basically, you know, his knuckles would drag across the mound as he, as he would pitch and uh, kind of like Kent DeColvey-ish. And he just seemed to be so effective. And you look at these numbers, and he was. I mean, it's not an illusion. You know, his numbers were, were quite good. Um, so Chad Bradford is one guy I wanted to touch on. And then I don't want to, you know, hog the show here because there aren't too many people to talk about. Um, but just to say that, you know, Jeremy Hefner, who uh, had a couple seasons with the Mets in 2012-2013. Uh, Hefner, you know, was never the greatest pitcher. You know, he was, you know, kind of uh, kind of pedestrian, shall we say. Um, but at the same time, you know, he is the Mets pitching coach this year. 
And so, you know, let's hope that if there is baseball, it, it's not always nice to have your own, you know, people who played for you back in the organization. So uh, I just wanted to touch on Jeremy Hefner as well, whose career was cut short, as so many are by arm injuries. That is true. You know, I really enjoyed watching Jeremy Hefner pitch, and, and I think he would have kept going in a, in a serviceable manner had he not had all those Tommy John surgeries. I believe he had two that basically derailed his career, and that's why at age 33 he's the Mets pitching coach. Um, Mike, take, take us away with number 53. Interesting dynamic how that works out. The man has a two-year career with the Mets, and now he's their pitching coach. Very interesting. Uh, Eric Hillman, another one. Very short career with the Mets, just three years, no other teams. Uh, Bobby Abreu, I've had a lot of laughs over the years at his expense. Never been a right wheel, right field wall he's been wanted to run into. Uh, long-standing joke. Good Philly, probably underrated overall. Uh, but once uh, he left Philly and came to New York with the Yankees, I think he was somewhat exposed, although he was beyond his prime years. Uh, but the running joke was him and, you know, not willing to uh, get anywhere near a right field wall. Good point. Um, it's such an interesting list with other names that generally don't come up with number 53, of course. And speaking of the era that, uh, that Jacob grew up in when it comes to Mets baseball, we got uh, Mr. Gangster himself, Jerry Manuel, on this list. Yeah, Jerry Manuel um, <laughs> was. It's, that, that's such a kind of a weird period of, of Mets history, kind of the the in between of, of Willie Randolph and, and Terry Collins. Um, I mean, he was he was kind of an extension of Willie Randolph in that he had been a coach under him, and um, you know, I I was not during his his tenure. I was not kind of in tune to the you know the the brainy the brainiac side of baseball as I am now. Um, so, you know, I don't, can't really say whether he was, he was a, a great manager or a terrible one either way. I, as far as I remember, he was kind of in the middle he had terrible teams, uh, you know, in, in, uh, 09, 10. Um, but, you know, always loved when he, he ran on the field and, uh, and would bark his head off and, and throw his hat down and, and kind of get behind his team. And, and I think that was, that was pretty admirable. Um, but yeah, I mean, Mike, you brought him up. Bobby Abreu, I, I kind of always admired him growing up and, and thought he was very underrated for his uh, entire career. Um, you know, even when he was with the Phillies and the Yankees, two of the, the Mets' biggest rivals, um, you know, I always kind of appreciated him. Um, you know, close to 2,500 hits, 200, what is that, 288 home runs, and 400 stolen bases. Yeah, I remember that. He, when he came to the Mets, he was sitting on 399, and, and he was 40 years old, and no one thought he would get number number 400, but he did steal one base. Um, and uh, then he, I'm pretty sure he got released during the 2014 season and then came back on a minor league deal and, and then uh, was up again in September. And then he started the last game of the year, got a hit in his last at-bat and came out to a nice ovation. So, um, you know, not someone that, that was going to get any Hall of Fame uh, traction, um, but someone who uh, who was a very solid player for a long time. I just don't think we can uh, go without talking about Rogers Hornsby on here. You know, at this point, when Rogers Hornsby was a coach with Casey Stengel in uh, 1962, he, uh, and I'm going to do my math incorrectly, but I mean, you know, 
he had been born in 1896, um, and so he was he was up there in age with Casey when when he uh, he took over as a, as a coach for the Mets. And um, Mike, I'll start with you with Rogers Hornsby. It's so interesting seeing these names sometimes next to Mets lore because it, they you know he wasn't a Hall of Famer with the Mets, but he certainly had a little bit of an impact at the beginning. Think about 1962 for a second and the polo grounds, the fabled polo grounds. It was a veritable museum at the time. Rogers Hornsby was a coach for them. Imagine having him along your sidelines in the dugout and in the locker room. Imagine having Stingle there with you. Imagine, you know, the matriarch, Joan Whitney Payson, Rome in the hallways. Then on the field, Richie Ashburn, Gil Hodges. You know, imagine having all these guys around in, in – in the same ballpark. Sure, you know, they set the record with 140 losses that season, but it's our record. It's a Mets record. We're proud of it. You know why? Because eight years later, we won a championship. So there. You know, but 62 goes very underspoken, and, and Rogers Hornsby is part of that because he was there. And it, it must have been amazing to go to the Polo Grounds in those days and, and, and see the multitude of Big name people roaming the ballpark on, a, on a, any given day, you know. Uh, uh, Gus, uh, Gus, uh, one of the bells. Oh, it escapes me. But one of the bells. He, I mean, he was a good player prior to his arrival at the Mets. And 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 and, and Thomas, Frank Thomas, I believe it was, heavy hitter with the Mets. And these guys don't get spoken of in that '62 team. And Rogers Hornsby was part of that. It must have been a fascinating time seeing all these memes. That's my point. And here's the uh, the tension I'll go with that. You know, and I've always thought, and and I'll go to you, Rich. I always thought that if if the owners of the Mets had were were you know not not even close to as tone deaf, of course, as the Wilpons are, but if they understood this franchise better, then they would be celebrating the 1962 Mets. As much as they celebrate the championship, because what what the Mets represented, and especially in a losing year where it didn't matter how much they they changed the way losing can can take shape, um, the fans didn't care and they came out in bunches. You know, it, it, the 1962 New York Mets are a very important uh, first foundation for this team, and I, I would put. You know, uh, uh, I would make a statue of, of Throneberry to go along with Joan Kaysen, to go along with Mike Piazza, to go along with Tom Seaver. And, you know, I, 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 I just wish that we, and maybe one day we will, but that these little things, it's not just that they, they care more about celebrating the Dodgers history or, they're, you know, they didn't even put any orange and blue into City Field. It's like they, they, the Wilpons have also basically just like completely shied away from ever even bringing up the fact that the 62 Mets existed. And it's, it's in, I, I think that the Wilpons are basically in ignoring the losing seasons of the New York Mets are, and, and, and trying to do so because they think it's, it's uh, you know, a, a, a black mark on the fan franchise. They themselves look more loserish than the actual 1962 New York Mets. Sorry for the rant. 
Well, no, I hear you. Um, clearly, they shy away from it because of the inglorious record that the you know, that the team holds. But um, they had to get started somewhere, and you know, and like Mike was saying, like you were saying, Sam, some of the names associated with the '62 Mets, as well as um, the other earlier years. You know, you would have, uh, you know, you had a Gil Hodges on that team. You had a Duke Snyder, I think, was 63. You had Yogi Berra, who was 65. Um, you had guys like that. You had Rogers Hornsby, like we've been talking about. And so it was, in, in a strange sort of a way, there was some star studying going on there. And um, and the team, you know, I, look, do you not want to glorify lovable losers and all of that maybe you don't but at the same time think about the people who passed through there and like like you were saying you know it, it, it was a star studded you know although these guys were certainly faded stars you had don zimmer you know people who passed through this organization in those early years it's it's worth mentioning because younger fans might not realize you know that you probably heard the name rogers hornsby okay uh great hitter you know from the old days right but maybe people don't realize that he wore the Mets uniform. Uh, you know, Casey Stengel, all these people. It's okay to say you don't have to celebrate the '62 team for what they did on the field, but you could celebrate the fact that you know some of the people who have passed through Mets history passed through before the Mets were good. You know, passed through in those very early years, and and I, I agree with you. Why not acknowledge that? I. I... Want to follow up with? Uh, I'm seeing Eddie Yost. Nobody's brought up Eddie Yost, I believe. Uh, maybe I'm wrong with that, but he wore the uh, number 53 from 68 to 76. So um, I, I want to go back to Jacob and what we're talking about. But I, I, before I forgot, Mike, what, what's the deal with Eddie Yost? Eddie Yost, remember him well as a child. He was a coach with the Mets along with Rube Walker and Joe Pignatano. You know, to me, that was the trio outside of the manager. Uh, Eddie Yost, a very common name in my childhood. Obviously, you can go back to his days. But, you know, I know him uh, most well as a coach for the New York Mets. And, again, I'll repeat their names along with Joe Pignatano and Rube Walker. Uh, they were the they were the mainstays for me. The mainstays for me. And, uh, you know, they go down in, in, in my personal law uh, as much as any player would. Yeah, Jacob, you know, they're talking about all these names uh, that have come through Mets history, even during the losing seasons, and, and especially in those early years when you didn't necessarily have nostalgia like every other team had to fall back on. They had nostalgia of baseball history uh, to, to, go, to go through. That's what the old-timer games, it, it, you know, you'd, you'd see a, uh, uh, an athletic there as much as you would see a, a, a Dodger or a Giant there. You know, Joe DiMaggio was at plenty of those Shea Stadium old-timer games. It's very interesting the way the Mets are a junction for baseball history. Yeah, for sure. Um, and as someone who appreciates baseball history and, and thinks it's important to uh, remember it and, and not let these names of the past go uh, go by the wayside um i think it's it's very cool and and it's important to to bring it all up uh, i think the one name that that we didn't mention in terms of these kind of baseball legends who uh you know donned the mets uniform in the in the early 60s was warren spawn 
um, who who pitched uh, 20 games in 1965. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of name after name of uh, of, of uh, baseball legends who, who played for the Mets. You could probably field a, a, a dream team for, for uh, these names we're mentioning. Um, and then the other one that came to mind was kind of – it was kind of before his uh, ascent to – baseball legend but whitey herzog was was a coach also in uh in the in the uh, 60s the third base coach and was in charge of the farm system and then uh was uh snubbed for for uh the manager job to take over for for gil hodges after he passed away in, in uh in favor of yogi Berra. um and then obviously he became a a hall of fame uh, manager so um yeah the the, the list kind of go, goes on and on as, as you dive uh, deeper into it I also appreciate you teasing number 54 for us by bringing up Whitey, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so join us next week for sure on, on number 54. And uh, before we go to the last word, I just want to wrap up number 53. Uh, Rich, is there anything else you would like to comment about uh, number 53? Um, well, you know, seeing that it's such a short list, I, I think I've um, exhausted everything I would want to say. We have, uh, you know, Mark Guthrie, I barely remember him passing through in 2002. Um, but really, I think in summary, it's a number that, you know, worn by the most prominent name is probably a co- was probably the manager, Jerry Manuel, and a bunch of guys who kind of came through for cups of coffee, you know, Eric Hillman, uh, Chad Bradford, Jeremy Hefner, Bobby Abreu. So it's been kind of a transient number. That is for sure. I think I'm just going to go ahead and give this one to Rogers Hornsby. You know, he, he's the first one in, in history to wear it. Uh, nobody really trumped him from a, a legendary standpoint after that. Uh, and, you know, no offense to Jerry Manuel. Um, and, yes, Rogers Hornsby is going to be taking number 53 for me. Um, but, but, Mike, do you, is there one other thing you want to say, maybe about Rafael Landestoy? <laughs> Very interesting about that one, but no, uh, there's nothing that goes after Rogers Hornsby. That would be disrespectful. We end there. That we do, and I will pass it back to Jacob. Uh, Jacob, uh, before you give your last word, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And like we like to say, please give us your shameless plug. Tell us, tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, well, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Jacob underscore Resnick, um, R-E-S-N-I-C-K. Um, you know, uh, it's nothing, nothing, uh, you know, more to do than, than uh, endlessly scroll through Twitter and, and have conversations with people over that medium. So, uh, you know, shoot me a follow and, um, and just kind of like everyone else, just, you know, hoping, uh, hoping and waiting for, um, for mid baseball to be back in, in 2020, but no, I just, Appreciate you guys having me on again, and uh, you know, anytime I'll, I'll be glad to come back. Thank you, Jacob, and you're welcome back anytime. Uh, going to Rich, what is your last word, Rich? Interesting. This is going to be an interesting week um, when the owners have to vote on the proposal, then send over the players, get their comment. So I'm not sure if it's going to be interesting good or interesting bad, but I do think there will be a lot of news about that. We'll see where both sides stand with it. We'll see what kind of counterproposals and new ideas and concerns pop up. 
Um, I think it'll be a pretty prominent story, uh, you know, for Major League Baseball this week. And, and let's see the way let's see where it goes. That it may, it's, that uh, you know, interesting really nails it. That's for sure. <laughs> um, Mike, what do you have to say for your last word? Pay attention. History is unfolding before our very eyes. Take it day by day and see what happens. I will go with no rush. Uh, as much as we're excited to even be talking about the prospect of, of baseball being back, and look how excited I even got for a quick defensive debate about Pete Alonso. Uh, but like Mike says, you know, uh, uh, just from, from his perspective, he doesn't think we should be going on the field at all. Um, from my perspective, let's not rush this. Whether or not we go onto the field, it, you know that 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 is going. Well, they're going to have to figure that out. But let's not rush the decision because, of course, we want baseball back, but we shouldn't affect people's lives forever because of it. So let's let's see where this takes us. As Rich says, this will be interesting, one way or the other. We'll see what we're talking about when we are on the 54th episode of a Mexican podcast next week. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us tonight. And I will go to Rich with the only way I know how. How do we finish this? Well, I think that would be let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Catch you next week. Thanks, everybody.